Welcome back to Cognitive Revolution. I'm Cody Commerce, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. So today's guest is Liz Neely. This was a fun conversation uh, that I had with Liz, and basically her story is that she's done really cool things with science communication. So she started off interested in marine biology and you know, studying that for undergraduate, going into graduate school and sort of being on that track. And then at some point realizing like, hey, this is not how I relate to this material most directly. This is not how I want my interest to manifest in my career. And we talk a lot about what that decision looked like, but the, the upshot of it is that she left graduate school to go pursue other things and ended up doing lots of cool stuff along the way in a career that is still unfolding doing really cool stuff. Uh, we talk, you know, all the major highlights about what those different things look like. I will let you hear it in the conversation itself. But, you know, she's working on sort of the most ambitious of those projects yet, which is her own sort of thing uh, called Liminal. It sounds really cool, and I think it's going to play out in a very interesting way over the next couple of years. So at any rate, um, you know, it's it's just it's always fun to hear from someone who has taken an alternative path that, you know, started off being like, hey, this is what I'm interested in and finding the way that you actually are interested in those things rather than just following the prescribed path of like, OK, yeah, no, get your Ph.D. and go, you know, be a professor and stuff. So it was a lot of fun talking to Liz. She's got a great voice. I could listen to her, you know, read things all day long. And uh, this conversation was a lot of fun. So without any further ado, here is Liz Neely. So the first thing I usually like to start with is uh, where did you grow up? Ah, yeah. I always get nervous when people ask me where I grew up because I'm like, oh, what am I supposed to say? A little bit, of, a little bit everywhere. So I'm going to be fact checking your answers, by the way. So, you know, if you get it wrong, <laughs> I would, uh, yeah. Um, I moved every two or three years. And so I kind of feel I used to feel very proud of saying like, oh, I'm not from anywhere in particular. But that's not true because, uh, you know, the Air Force bases where I lived, there's a certain community and continuity of like culture and expectations. So I was born in Utah. We moved every two or three years. I ended up, the toughest transition was going from living in Germany. Um, I was there when the wall fell. I was a little kid. Um, And then moving to Ohio, where the kids in school told me that Iceland didn't exist. (laughs) Do they have any evidence uh, for this? Like, that just seems a strange strange accusation to make against. Kids are kids. And I think the tough thing is going from um, a system where everybody's moving all the time so you're all used to it and this is just normal to a place where the same kids had known each other since you know preschool and now you're the new girl you're the outsider yeah so I had to figure out how to make my way and fit in in a variety of different places maybe they were making less a sort of geographical argument more a linguistic argument given that icelandic <laughs> is so you know sort of conservative and resembles old norse so manifestly they're like well no 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 in fact icelandic culture is really a relic of, of the more generalized old norse culture and therefore is really on shaky ground of whether it's it's of its own maybe that's what they were thinking I mean, to be fair i am in favor of um giving the benefit of the doubt yeah. <laughs> to your opponent in an argument. I've actually heard lots so, of sure. uh, Ohioans make that 
make that claim before. So anyway, uh, here's another way to frame this question that I'm curious if this elicits a different sort of answer to you. Where do you feel like you came of age, right? Where oh, do you like, you know, there's there's question. you who was moving around and experiencing all these things. And then there was at some point, you know, I, I think for most people, it's like, okay, this is when I started to really become me, the adult version that I relate to yeah. now. When did that happen for you? I, I think that was grad school. Mm. Um, and, and what I really like to think is that it almost felt more like a re-emergence of me. Like I, I was one of these kids who was very serious. I took myself very seriously and I just wanted to live the life of the mind. I wanted to travel and, you know, do science. I always knew I wanted to do science. So like as a 10 to 12 year old, I had a very strong sense of self, but then I think as is not uncommon for women, um, that kind of got snarled and tangled and confused. Um, and so it wasn't until I was, you know, 22, 23 in grad school in Boston, um, feeling much more like an autonomous person who could make my own choices and assess like my own value and my own values, um, on my own terms. So I think that that process of self-authorship is really interesting. And for me, doing field work as a graduate student was one of the places where I both lost a lot of control. I'm also a person who likes to like keep everything planned and color organized and realizing there's a lot of things in life you can't control. Um, and yet at the same time, come to terms with who I truly am and what I want and stop being afraid of that and trying to shape it for other people. Yeah. Yeah. Let's dig into it. Uh, let's try and start on the other side of that transition so we can see what that transition kind of looked like. So you, you did your undergrad at University of Maryland. And That's right. Go you, Terps. You studied marine biology. So did you come into undergrad knowing that you wanted to do marine biology? What's did that, did. What did that look yeah. like? Um, I was one of those, you know, one of those obnoxious kids who always had this clear vision for myself. I wanted to study science. Um, I have an origin story. Everybody comes up with these at some point, be like, oh, yeah, that was the moment I knew. So mine was I lived in Iceland as a little kid. A Navy diver came into my classroom and showed us a sea urchin. And I couldn't believe that that thing, A, was an animal and B, was an animal that lived in the ocean in Iceland. And so it just fascinated me. And so marine biology was an aspirational thing. I also heard so many people say, oh, well, it's really hard. You know, like very, very, very few people get to study this. And so I was just like, oh, watch me. <laughs> so yeah, I went straight through. I, I had um, one of those Howard Hughes Medical Institute, like young scholars program experiences in high school where I went away to Villanova University for a summer, had lecture all morning, lab all afternoon, field work on the weekends, and then a research program for a year. So I knew right right off the bat that I wanted to do research and that I wanted to do it in fish. Yeah. And then uh, I guess it sounds like did that did that since you went straight into graduate school after that did that vision for what that was going to look like continue uh was it sort of a sort of contiguous into graduate school or did, was it there, was yeah it was and um that's one of those life choices that you look back on and you're like oh wow i really thought i knew exactly what i was doing and i really did not <laughs> i 
I was an, an overperformer. I was like a, the goodiest goody two shoes. I studied so carefully. All my notes are like alphabetical and per, like perfect handwriting and all, all the outward signals of like, this is a person putting in the effort. And I was really good at standardized tests and just taking tests in general. So by the ways we measure, you know, like high schoolers and undergraduates, I was like, oh, killing this. I am so ready for academia. I'm going to be the best scientist there ever was. And I had no clue, no preparation at all for the reality of what it means to work at that interface where you're building knowledge and you're extending what's known rather than just regurgitating um, what you've been taught. So was there a moment for you where you were kind of like, oh, shit, there's a disconnect here. Something is not working the way that I planned. Uh, what did it look like to sort of when did I guess when did that vision start to come into question? You know? Yeah. It's really hard to say. I don't have um, one of those like crystalline, narratively satisfying moments. And I think that's so true for many of us is you have this uneasy sense for weeks, months, years that something isn't quite right. And in my case, uh, it wasn't internally generated. It was more of an external push. So I was finished with the third year. Um, of my PhD program, had taken my quals and passed, was loving everything. And then the short version is basically life kind of knocked me sideways. A whole lot of things happened roughly at the same time. Um, I had family issues going on. Um, my advisor ended up taking a job at a different university. My graduate program was in Woods Hole and packed up and moved to Boston. But I think more than all of those things, it was that sunk cost fallacy of I realized this is not what I thought I was getting myself into and I can keep spending more years to complete it. Um, but I'm not sure that this is the best use of my life. And I didn't know what the alternative was. And I think that's the most important thing for graduate students, for people who are at career transition points, is accepting that uncertainty in the moment and, and that sense of not knowing. And if you have the privilege, the buffer to be able to take a chance, to find the courage and say, um, <laughs> life is short. Life is, you know, what are you going to do with your one wild and precious life? Um, I had never quit anything before I made that transition. And it wasn't that I deliberately did either. I, th I thought I was taking, taking a six-week-long leave of absence. Um, but I got swept up into another career and then had the courage, the sense, I don't know, to say, this is what's setting my soul on fire right now. This is where I am perhaps not uniquely but particularly suited to make a difference. Uh, as a side note, have you ever considered? So uh, I believe that was a Mary Oliver quote. Have you ever? Uh, yeah. Have you ever considered reading poetry for a living? Because you have a fabulous, expressive poetry reading voice. <laughs> Thank um, you. Yeah. Gosh. I think no. So I um I put myself into voice coaching lessons one time when I first started doing voiceover for podcasts. Yeah. And the woman gave me tasting notes about my voice. And she said I had chocolatey undertones. And I was mm -hmm. like, ooh, chocolatey undertones. That sounds amazing. Yeah. 
But I think so. This is one of those things, right? Like I um, have spent at this point fifteen years standing in front of groups of faculty and graduate students, standing on stages, giving keynotes, and trying to help people sort of break free and, and give themselves a moment of space to imagine, to dream, to hope, to reconsider how they've been working, how they see the world. And you realize like your voice is an instrument. And yeah. so learning how to command a room or to hold space, um, to use all of the artistic and expressive emotive tools that are of you know at our that we can access is something I've I've been really interested in yeah yeah well that it sounds like that's all paid off those those chocolatey undertones really coming out uh <laughs> so okay uh chocolatey undertones aside um one of the things that uh I bring up a lot on this show for this sort of space of, of, of conversation is that one of the things that academia gives us uh, is a very concrete path of this is what success looks like. It's extremely yes. linear. It's undergraduate, you'll uh, RA position or master's, graduate school, uh, postdoc number one, postdoc number two, undertenured faculty, tenured faculty. And you can sort of parse out and say, well, this is, these are the milestones I need to hit. And so even though there's a massive amount of career uncertainty at every step of, of the way, you know you have high certainty about what success looks like, this concrete path and this very uh, visualizable. I think vision is really a good word for, for what this is because it's like you can really visualize what that what that looks like. Once you say, okay, well, I'm going to go off and do something else. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do science communication. Well, science communication can look like so many things, right? Anything else that you choose to do uh, uh, is probably going to have less visualizability of what that path is going to look like. So I'm curious to know when you actually did make that decision, like, okay, I am going to commit to doing something else. Did you already have a sense of, did you have a new vision? Cause you know, you, that was a big part of what you were doing. How did, how did you navigate that uncertainty? What did that junction look like? Oh, it was a nightmare. I I was just like a you know in free fall like a cat <laughs> and just I I didn't I would never have admitted to it then. Um, I am definitely one of those like people who likes to imagine myself as the swan like just like grace and then below the water you know frantic paddling plus like you know emergency attack mode when necessary. But um, I didn't I. My transition out of science and into science communication was the first time in my life that I actually didn't have a plan in mind. I'm also very competitive. So like you're saying, that sort of structured system of academia, I loved it because I was like, win this scholarship, get that fellowship, go to this program. It's easy to check those things off the box. And so to stop doing that and start listening to where am I finding fulfillment? Where am I receiving feedback about the difference I'm making in other people's lives? Or can, where can I see that I've created some kind of change? Um, and that was really challenging and really surprising. Um, and and I still don't have a set vision. 
you know, in a way, going from an assistant director at one nonprofit to an executive director at another was a fallback to that old, like, okay, just advance, 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 move the next step. Um, but I think it's really important in terms of a sense of self and um, satisfaction with my own life, both intellectually as well as professionally and emotionally and all the rest of that, to accept the fact that it's only in retrospect that I can look back at my path and be like, oh, I see how all the pieces fit together. I see the themes as they emerge and I elaborate on them and I come back to it. And I've now started to think of my own career more like almost like I'm wearing snowshoes and it's just step by step. And I I broaden sort of the scope of the focus that I have and then I deepen it. So I was doing science communication focused on media, policy making and social media. So it's very broad. I kept fascinated by narrative. So then I focused in on storytelling. And now I'm stepping back again to a broader look at sense making and how we use storytelling to help us understand what to make of the world and what to do next. Cool. Yeah, that sounds like uh, I can kind of imagine how that's going to map on to some of the things that you've done. So maybe let's go through that. Sure. Each snowshoe step, you know, (laughs) concretely and and look at that. So the first, the first uh, like position that you held after graduate school was uh, CWEB, their Asia Mm -hmm. Pacific program. Um, That's right. And so that uh, that was um, like in Fiji and Papua New Guinea, uh, helping connect local knowledge about coral reefs with uh, media and people who would be able to get that knowledge into the hands of people who you know. That that's so what yeah what tell me tell me tell me what that looked like and then how how you got hooked up in that in that space yeah. So I was working in um, so coral reef management and sort of local coastline management. And I learned in that job the importance of local knowledge, local control. So in Fiji and in Papua New Guinea, these the, the local communities have been living on these same reefs for thousands of years. They have traditional practices. They have tons of knowledge about how best to care for those systems, how to fish effectively. Um, And so what we were doing was supporting taking that and connecting it across broader networks so that we have these locally managed marine area networks in Fiji and Papua New Guinea, and then also helping connect those voices to local press, so media, policymakers, um, in-country, who then can appreciate, understand, support what's going on in in those networks. and so I, my job was to teach like fundamentals of communication skills because I think even those of us who are not trained in academia, when you have sufficiently deep knowledge of any topic, it's the curse of too much knowledge, right? And being able to identify how do you distill all of this into a, a message that penetrates or that connects or that, you know is meaningful to someone who doesn't have that background. So we would do communications training there. We would do basic science um, education for local journalists about like, what is a mangrove or what are ecosystem services? And then more importantly, introduce people to each other so that those relationships um, could go, you know, 
thrive without interference from outsiders. Yeah. So one of the one of the things you said um, is that you want to listen to where you're getting feedback and where you're starting to get, mm. you know, f- fulfillment in. So I guess I'm curious when you look back on that, um, you know, sort of as at the denouement of graduate school at the, at the beginning of starting this new career path, that sort of stuff. I imagine there was some level of just sort of, okay, I'm casting about trying to find something that's, a, 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 you know, in, in, in the marine bio, biological esque space but what was the what were the things that you were listening to in terms of the feedback that you got and the things that you were finding fulfillment and be like okay i'm going to try and further those and maybe let go of some of these other things can you think back on on where you were and in any sort of aspect of the process that looked like that yeah um when i entered ocean conservation and i was working for an american nonprofit doing work in the pacific Um, And especially once I got on site, I couldn't help but notice patterns of who held the stage, who had the microphone, who were the famous people, who was doing all of the talking in the space. Um, And it's hard to miss how white and Western um, a lot of that NGO presence was at the time and also how much of the leadership was men. And in grad school, you know, we're trained in journal club and we're trained like at conferences and stuff. I really wanted to be that person who could hold forth at length and just like talk, command, argue, all of those things. Um, But I also knew basically because of where I was on the power sort of hierarchy, as well as I don't know if it's just like social awareness or because I had traveled so much as a kid and grown up in different cultures um, I learned, I, I noticed how much people appreciated me listening really intently and not just walking into a new space and starting to tell everyone what we were going to do. So that made an impression on me. Um, I also got invited to do some work in Hawaii. There's a, a traditional fishing village, Milali'i, and um, I was asked to help with a project where we were teaching kids how to do reef transects, so to count fish, and that was amazing. And then also to use recording equipment to talk, to learn how to like capture the stories of their elders, their kupuna. And then I realized like, oh, there's this instinct to be extractive for like Western science to be like, oh, we're going to study these stories. We're going to use this, you know, we're going to use this somehow. Um, And it made me start understanding and appreciating ownership. The idea of like not everything just belongs to you for the taking just because you you title yourself a scientist. Uh, And so the difference in the relationship that I had with people, um, with my teams in Fiji and Papua New Guinea, with my colleagues, um, I saw an opportunity to be different than, um, a system that had been in place for decades. And, um, let's, let's face it, is not working, does not work. That's such a that's such a profound concept and thinking about you know, this idea of the ownership of stories and our default mm-hmm. uh, assumptions about that and uh, that seems like such an interesting interesting concept to to play with and uh, I mean I I admit I struggled with it a little bit at first um, 
and but then like you you learn from and you talk with people who are first nations or indigenous peoples who only tell certain stories certain times of year or only tell certain stories um at appropriate moments or important ceremonies or to certain people and then you start extrapolating it and you realize we all do this all the time I firmly believe that you don't owe everyone your story and I think there's been an unfortunate move again in the nonprofit community to take people who have suffered in some way um, and then capitalize on their stories in order to fundraise or to motivate action and there's such a difference between giving someone a platform, giving someone the microphone, giving them space, following their lead, um, versus exploiting their pain. And so I, I do think that being more thoughtful about what that intimacy and vulnerability that comes with stories means um, puts us in a much better place to have meaningful exchange of ideas and more humanistic relations and science communication benefits so much from trust and respect uh, and I think this is a one place for us to start yeah yeah I look forward to incorporating what you just said there as your relationship to stories as a professional you know mm. thinker of stories teller of stories uh, presenter of stories uh, grows so let's let's keep that Let's keep that uh, in in the conversation. So, when did you when did you start to call what you do science communication? When did that label be like ah I've got a thing that I do now? Uh, yeah. And obviously, you know, it may be, be more multifarious than that, but at least there's a there's a label to sort of congregate uh, that yeah. identity, that professional identity around. Well, <laughs> when I left grad school. Um, and went into ocean conservation. I admit, like, I didn't want to be tagged as an activist. I didn't want to say that, like, oh, what I was doing was, like, conservation. And it's a, it's a rhetorical move, right? It's a gambit to be like, oh, no, no, no. What I'm doing is merely science communication. I'm just educating and informing you. Yeah. So I think I was primed for that. But I um, was really lucky that at the same time I was doing the work in the Pacific, um, we saw... Uh, deep sea corals coming down the high fashion runways in Milan and Paris, New York. And we realized there's an opportunity to build a campaign here. So I was part of a program that's supported by the Tiffany & Co. Foundation called Too Precious to Wear. This was my baby, like as a graduate, you know, fresh out of grad school. And I got to do two things. One was um, international policy work trying to get uh, so the US government supported a, a proposal that I had suggested around well we need to do more monitoring of international trade in these deep sea corals and then also we'd built a, like a fashion campaign um, for magazine editors so I got to be like in Manhattan doing a breakfast at Tiffany's for all the editors of the magazines to tell them about this material most people had no idea that corals were living things much less that there are even deep sea corals at all and so that was when I really was like oh this is this is a really exciting interesting cool different thing that I can call science communication because I feel like a lot of the locally managed marine area network stuff was much more community support and organizing and um, this felt more like quote-unquote science communication 
total sidestep. Yeah. Just question. What is, if you had one body of water that you uh, could look at for the rest of your life, that you could commune with, that you could be a part of, that you could build your life around, one and only one body of water, which one do you choose? That is so unfair. (laughs) That question is impossible. Bonus Um, points if it's Puget Sound. I know, right? Well, so I, I actually never dove in Puget Sound. Yeah, uh, I don't know if I'd yet, recommend it. <laughs> oh, man. I'm not going to answer that question. I flat out refuse. So, like, in my <laughs> in my, in my my dreams and yeah. in, like, uh, I spent a lot of time in Whalebone Bay in Jamaica. That mm. was a, a field course that I TA'd on the behavior of coral reef organisms. Yeah. And there was a, a bunch of baby barracuda out there that were my friends. And oh, wow. I dream about them, which is funny. But, I, you know, there's there's soft coral gardens in Fiji that I think about all the time. There's places in Papua New Guinea. I, I'm so lucky yeah. not to have a good question or a good answer to that question. Yeah. This uh, thing, and this is this is just sort of going down the travel. But I'm I'm fascinated. Like, did you did you always feel connected to water in this really profound way? Is did you, would you say that that's like things that like life that happens in the in the in the water is something that you've just had this connection to, or is it something that you that the interest sort of developed from that very first sea anemone? Uh, like, look at that thing, you know? You know, I don't know. Mm. I think there's a really strong incentive structure to be like, oh, yes, you can see, you know, I don't know. I I lived in Las Vegas. We didn't have any water. It's not like I was, uh, you know, growing up. The Bellagio Fountain counts as a body of water, in my opinion. No, I just think it seemed... So like it seems so alien. I think that's that's what it is. Is for me there was an initial fascination and curiosity of just this is a place I cannot live. I don't. I can't exist. The organisms here are so different from me. How do they do it? Right. Um, and it doesn't hurt that you know as a graduate student living you know on Cape Cod and in Boston that my field sites were in Bermuda and Jamaica and you know I'd go to Mexico go to Brazil that's incredible um so do I love the ocean absolutely (laughs) am I like a water creature who her whole life has been no I I I also love the mountains and I love the forests and I, I love music and drinking and you know like it's just one of many things. And I think there's a, I've been thinking about this a lot lately of, um, I named my company Liminal for this moment of transition, of figuring out just when something comes to that level where you can finally perceive it. Yeah. And so I've been reading all this about moments of transition and liminal states and sense making and uncertainty. And there's this sense, and these papers, these classic papers say, sense-making starts in chaos. And in fact, sometimes action is clarifying. And it's not that it reduces the uncertainty, but it's that you are then able to react to changes you've created. And so I think the fact that I ended up down an ocean pathway is there's a lot of momentum that starts to build over time. Um, And it's not 
preordained. It's not fate or anything like that. Um, but it is personally fulfilling. It yeah. is personally like it, there's just so much joy in it. And yeah. I think that's the important thing is find the things that inspire you that can be self-sustaining in some way. Um, and then, yeah, go from there if you can. Yeah, I think that's I think that's really beautiful. Um a process of meaning making and, and sense making and, and, and creating this constellation of, of meaningful relationships with places and things and concepts and stories and, and all this sort of stuff that that's built up and that, I think that, that that's that's beautiful and the and I think the important thing is then too like at least for me and this may not be true for everybody I think that's the like peril of giving advice but in a sense, like the ocean was taken away from me as a primary professional, um, you know, sort of focus or not taken away from me, but I, I, I left it. I'm in I'm working in other spaces now, but I don't feel a sense of grief, a sense of loss. Um, and having that ability to say, like, here are the kinds of questions that fascinate and motivate me. They may manifest in very different ways. You might be working in entirely different professional spaces. Um, and so it's not like, oh, I'm an ocean girl, and if I don't do ocean stuff, then I have failed or I'm unhappy. Um, but rather, like for me, love the water, love the oceans. I'm also just really deeply fascinated by complex ecosystem interactions. I'm interested in how does information flow in very noisy settings and whether we're asking those questions about how reef fish see each other or how human beings in social media networks are, you know, sharing information. It's kind of the same thing that's driving me and seeing those patterns and being able to borrow from that knowledge and apply it into this other space. That is what really gets me the most excited. That's so cool. Yep. Um, okay. So I want to, I want to maybe skip ahead just a little bit in your story in the interest of time and, I want to talk about uh, when you started at Story Collider and your mm -hmm. uh, new uh, uh, newer company, Liminal. Um, and I guess I, I what I want to try and do is I want to try and triangulate your um, your perspective on stories, your your insights, and and you know what how you think about stories at the intersection of stewardship of stories like you, we were talking about earlier um with uh you know the the you could call them the moral obligations of of of, of telling mm -hmm. stories and, and all this sort of stuff who gets to say what when and uh so that's one uh prong another prong is telling compelling stories you have to tell good stories that people want to listen to that people are going to buy into and are going to resonate with people's identities and then over here the third prong you have making money based off of stories. <laughs> this is something that you are trying to do professionally at a very high level. And you are asking, you are on the, 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 the cutting edge of asking questions about, okay, what is it going to look like to have, you know, these, these two prongs, the, the stewardship and the, the compelling, the compellingness of the stories and also make a business out of it. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that's sort of, you know where I'm. I, I, I'm just curious to get your perspective on how you balance all of those things. How has that looked like during this? You know, I guess the sort of 
uh, more recent portion of your career where you've really been executing on that at a, at a very, very high level, you know? So I, I like to phrase this question as, how do we make art while making a living? And it is, it's an exciting question and it's a hard one. So when I first joined Story Collider, I was strongly motivated because in the science communication space, stories and narrative had just been this massive buzzword for a very long time. They actually set my teeth on edge. I used to really hate it because I was afraid of manipulation. I was afraid that we were using emotional appeals to sort of short circuit rational thinking. And that just didn't appeal to me at like sort of my foundational level of who I am. Um, but I recognized that it didn't have to be that way. And so I was I wanted to learn from professionals, people whose you know identity is really built up as performers who tell personal stories on stage and then are helping those of us who are amateurs are not doing this professionally to take advantage of those same skills and tools. So that's what Story Collider was doing. They came at it from a different perspective. They did not consider themselves quote unquote, a science communication organization. It was more like a theater and performance company that happened to have a science focus, which was perfect. Um, and I, I followed that lead in looking for opportunities of how do you frame this? How do you, I mean, for lack of a better word, how do you sell this to funders or to supporters, to donors? And what I found was there was this mismatch. In the science communication community, broadly speaking, um, stories were okay if they had an educational goal. And it was sort of like, well, we'll tell these stories to lure people in and then we'll like stealth educate them. Which when you really start thinking about it, you're like, oh, that's that's gross. Um, let's not do that. And so then I needed to figure out, A, what do stories actually do? And then how can we kind of help redirect that? And, and Whenever you're running a nonprofit or a business, I think about the brand promise. What is it that you say you uniquely contribute? And the more that you can avoid, um, you know, making promises that A, you can't live up to, and B, don't make sense anyways, um, the better you are. And so if I needed to drop and sort of push back against the educational push, um, I needed to understand what do stories do particularly well and so this is where I dug into the literature and was I was asking the performers asking our producers asking my artistic director when you're standing on stage and the magic is happening when that room is pin drop silent what do you see what do you feel what's going on there between you and the audience and then going into as much as I could find in the research of psychology you know social science risk perception all the rest of this and then then like hit upon concepts like narrative transportation narrative engagement and how those tie into persuasion so then I could talk to funders and explain that there's not this sort of linear connection between I tell a story and then you learn x y or z but rather I tell a powerful story you go through this emotional flow and if you're fully transported into that story, what we see are outcomes around um, more enhanced opportunities. People go back and they revisit the source material. There's more social sharing, so they talk with their friends about it. Um, there's more self-motivated learning, so they go and learn more about the topic. And that is actually the – so what I was doing was building the conceptual model of what a story is actually good for. B, 
being able to then align the promise, the brand promise of what the organization does with what, like, with the means of doing that, then you can find some people will just go back, you know, they'll go look for whatever the educational thing is, but others will buy into the idea of what you're doing and they'll support you and take chances, especially if you can pull this sort of entrepreneurial experimental um, approach that science trains us how to do is, well, we need to evaluate this. Um, Evaluation is not a, you know, delightful topic that people just light up of like, ooh, let's talk about this. But if you can show that you are, you have a theory and you are actually building that out and you have sort of iterative processes within your organization, then you've got something. And I think what I'm really trying to, like, if I could say it all much more briefly, is the administrative and bureaucratic side of what you do in a nonprofit or in a business is as much a part of how you fulfill your mission in the world as the programming is. And so if you can be rigorous and experimental and creative in designing you know, your business plan, your financial revenue mix, um, your evaluation scheme. I think you attract the attention of people who are like-minded and um, you will get the support and build a community of um, those who are excited about that kind of approach in the world. Yeah, ton of stuff to to sort of <laughs> break down in that. So Let's see, on the components of how to create good stories around science with the ultimate goal Mm -hmm. of being uh, conveying scientific information, let me try and rephrase some of the stuff that you said to make sure I've understood it. So you're saying that the sort of classical model, the naive model of scientists telling stories is that you have the medicine, which is the science, and the the story is the little sweet, you know, it's the airplane coming into the hangar. It's the little sweet thing that you put on there um, to make the, um, uh, the science, the medicine go out and easier. That's a fundamental misunderstanding of the nature of stories and the way that we engage with them and the way that we uh, learn from them and that sort of stuff. Uh, and really what you need to be doing is prioritizing the story and saying, look, Uh, The nature of stories is that uh, they're not, you know, they're not graphs, right? The most direct way to explain a concept is show a graph of what the data say. Um, And that's why scientific articles have graphs rather than stories. But to connect with the the average human being in the way that is most meaningful to them, you need to tell a story. That's what we naturally do. And what you're getting out of that is not the medicine delivery of science but you are integrating someone into an ecosystem in which science is valued uh and that's what you're saying with so you you tell the story they become more interested in this they consume other similar things they start to put pieces together they maybe go back and look okay here was what's and so is, is that um more the alternative model is that a correct um characterization of the alternative model that you're saying there's a lot of what you just said that I agree with. And I think for me, it is storytelling is about the process of science. You know, all the time we say like, uh, science isn't just about throwing data at people. Um, what we want is to help people explore the world and understand how they've come to a belief and how to integrate new information 
into the ways they think about the world. And this is what stories do. They are plausible, <laughs> causal explanations for, oh, when this happens, when you go into the woods, uh, you know, there's a wolf or, or something like that. And so what I find personal storytelling particularly powerful about science is that it helps um, explore counterintuitive pathways or the ways in which our intuitions may not always um, take us to the most powerful landing place. And showing that process for all of its, you know, the beauty, the terror, the disaster, we, the heartbreak, everything that is part of science makes it more accessible makes it more human and that helps take it takes it away from this elite status of like oh those people who are arrogant and removed from us and not like me doing these things that I couldn't do and it makes it more part of you know I, I think it just cor course corrects and it puts it in its cor in the actual relationship to real people's lives real questions mm. um, and invites people in yeah. It encourages them to explore, to think, to engage in perspective taking, imagine how other people see the world. And then that all collectively supports, I don't know, I, I think a lot of us really need to recognize the agency of audiences rather than just hoping that our science communication will force them to behave the way we want them to behave, you know? Yeah. So... Um, another attempt at rephrasing here is that it's less about knowing what scientists think and more about how they came to think it, right? Mm -hmm. if, if you can understand more about that. So not just say, here's the thing you should believe, but here's how it came to be that that's, um, you know, that, that, that that knowledge exists. And then you can more use, you have, you have, uh, greater ability to evaluate that going forward as that changes, as that develops, as as uh, more new information comes in. That that's the longer term game plan. That's 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 kind of. I it, yeah. I agree with that, and also, and there's the rub, right? We are all awash in information, and we're just flooded with things that we are supposed to have opinions about, or decisions we need to make, or the details, the technicalities of how mo the modern world works. And so, I think this is very difficult when it's like, well, here's a here's a new issue. Let's get into how we came to our, you know, how we understand this. That doesn't sound particularly inviting to me. I'm just like, no, 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 no. Just tell me what I need to know. Like, why this? Why now? Why you? Um, and stories help make it enjoyable, make it relatable. If you care about a person, you care about their magnificent obsession or the weird things that they're doing with their career. Um, and I think it invites you to go from first person like the limited the limitations of our first person experience and invite you to think more abstractly more broadly yeah. um, about the world okay yeah no i like i like that okay so here's here's another so tying in that other prong where it's like okay how do you make money off this one of the things that you were sort of saying as a core of your business principles is that like what we're doing is we're uh creating stuff that is going to resonate with people's identities or resonate with some it's going to resonate with some core part of them 
and we're going to build up our um, our base around that. That's going to be a, a number that it increases, and 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 that's our community that we're building. And so you could kind of you said uh, you know why this, uh, why now, uh, why you, which would sort of be the old model of sort of monolithic information of like okay the New York Times picks stuff to present to the public because uh, you know why this why now why the particular person you know reporting on it in a certain way right that would be how you evaluate information in the monolithic here's we're all going to get uh, you know the New York Times information and now uh, with both good and bad consequences we have a splintering of the media landscape where content is more and more niche to your particular interests uh, I'm going to create something that's of interest to a particular kind of person. You're going to create something of um, interest to a particular kind of person. And we're both going to, at a smaller but more direct scale, appeal to those growing populations of people who listen to our stuff and be like, yep, that person is uh, is doing things in a way that makes sense to me. That's, that's Get me? yeah, that, that was my, that's my uh, that's me trying to say what I'm drawing the dots between what you've said. How does that resonate yeah. with the way that you think about it? You're making me think about um, comedians um, when they talk about their craft and who they're making joke, who they're writing jokes for, and kind of what their ideal audience looks like, sounds like. And I, I've heard um, various people talk about that their goal is to start making everybody in the room laugh. And then by the end of the set, there are maybe only two people laughing, but they're laughing harder than they've laughed in their entire lives. Um, I, I, I find that charming. I, I like this idea that what if we do make a living and do run nonprofits or run businesses without planning on indefinite growth because when you really start digging into it people are always asking what's next you know how big are you going to get what's your grand scheme um one of my friends who's uh, in finance instead he asked me what's your exit strategy what does the world look like when this particular nonprofit or this particular business is done and i like that thinking quite a lot of um, you know, in science, I think our our ultimate contribution, as much as, you know, if we're lucky, like, you know, here's a new concept or a new um, empirical insight, it's also clarifying the questions, like leaving behind better questions than when we started. Um, I think the same thing is true for my work is I'm not going to have an audience that follows me my whole life. You know, those, those people, that's my friends and my family. Um, maybe a few diehard fans. I think an audience is fluid. Um, people come in, they're part of the community, they learn, they, they think their own thoughts, you inspire them, and then they go off and do their own things. Um, and so that is quite different than imagining a static audience space that we're just going to grow over time. And so I feel like I've taken that my answer in a different direction than you intended me to. Such but, a uh, better sorry, answer than that. Such a <laughs> such a great direction. I love everything you just said. There's so much good stuff in that. 
Wow, that was uh, there I are really cool love papers that. about you can actually yeah. see and predict people's trajectories within a community on their vocabulary. Like as they come in, there's more and more like sort of linguistic mapping, and then you can predict when they are going to kind of move off into their own thing as their language is changing again. Mm. And so, just thinking about how our concepts and our language and our identities and our stories change over time, I think that's where the really good stuff is. I love that. Uh, so we're at the uh, end here. I want to be respectful of your time. Should we cut it here? Uh, is there anything you? I have. I can. I can go five more minutes if you need. Like I, I would feel like love I was five more minutes because the the sure. one I uh, well I want to ask you to sort of put a bow on things for people who are in graduate school. You know, sort of where you were um, uh, toward the end of your time in grad school. And going off to do, um, you know, the into the unknown, looking, uh, you know, going off the linear path into the uncertainty. What do you wish you had known, or uh, what have you learned now that you think is of 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 potential value to people in that situation? The hardest thing for us to learn at any time is that change comes, and you will find clarity you will make sense of your life of your career path you will live the story out and then you will tell it and as you tell it you'll shape the path in front of you as well Um, it's nerve-wracking it's the human condition but I find solace in the fact that I'm hardly alone I'm not the first person to do this Um, and to just find you know beauty in the process to find solace in the process that if you are doing good work day by day um, you will find your community you will find your place you will make your place in your community uh, I'm so excited to see how your uh, how liminal progresses so I, I definitely look forward to Thank checking you. back in the in, in a year or two or whatever it is and, and seeing uh, where you've gone for that but I am I will let you go here after this, but I just wanted to say that I'm totally on the same page with you with storytelling and respect to some of the stuff that we talked about with, uh, you know, connecting where, where scientific information, not just conveying scientific information, but really conveying it in a way that it makes it feels like it matters where and who it comes from and contextualizing yes. it. And that's, that's definitely the number one thing that as a communicator I'm interested in, I'm, 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 I'm actually working towards uh, a book proposal towards that kind of, of storytelling that really gets at that for, for psychology and, and uh, social science, behavioral science, that sort of stuff. So I, I, I am like, you know, I'm super excited to see what you do with it uh, and, and all, all that sort of stuff as well. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, I really like, I read some of your, your blog posts and your, and your pieces um, and really appreciate the perspective that you bring. So I'm also very much looking forward to seeing more from you, hearing more from you. Cool. Well, we'll definitely be in touch. I will let you know when the episode is going live and everything and uh, all that stuff. So. Fantastic. Fantastic.